Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Wednesday, December 4th. And this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at Fistionados at Yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fistionados Pod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and RingTV.com. Uh, before we start, a quick shout out to the New York Times. I was quoted in a Deontay Wilder preview article for his uh, his pay per view fight there against Luis Ortiz. Um, I know that's not the normal boxing fans' uh, fight destination, but shout out to them for covering the sport. All right, we're going to jump into the review section. the The deep dive is going to be on Andrew Cancio and the Golden Boy uh, Cancio release situation this week. Uh, And then we'll do a preview, obviously, the big fight this weekend with the heavyweights in Saudi Arabia. There's a lot to talk about there. But there's a lot to talk about in the review section. Let's obviously start with Saturday, November 23rd, with the big pay-per-view where Deontay Wilder beats Luis Ortiz by KO7. Also on the card, Leo Santa Cruz wins by unanimous decision over Miguel Flores in a pretty nondescript fight. And then Brandon Figueroa and Julio Ceja fight to a split draw. Final fight on the pay-per-view was not Luis Neri versus Emmanuel Rodriguez, but rather Eduardo Ramirez winning by KO4 against Ledwan Bartholomew. A couple of the storylines here. Uh, let's start out with the main event, which has now been talked about quite a bit. I've been fairly vocal on this part on Wilder in the ring. Deontay Wilder is actually a very good strategic fighter. No part on this strategy involves winning rounds. And I totally understand any scorecard that would have had him down 6-0 or 5-1 in terms of rounds. He was, however, doing pretty subtle things to set up what ended up being a one-punch KO. Um, and, and, you know, there's not too much more to say about that. I think he is what he is. Everyone's talked about it now for a while. I also think just in terms of crazy ramifications for this, like you'd have to think Fox and ESPN in particular, like were fairly nervous about what was happening after the fifth or sixth round. And then obviously it's just all's well that ends well for everybody except Luis Ortiz. I do think this was the best result for the sport of boxing. It really, I have no idea what would happen if, if Ortiz would have beat Wilder in the rematch, you know, now we're going to get a couple of bites at the apple in terms of what's happening in the heavyweight division and really the heavyweight division taking center stage in the sports world in a few moments um, and, and having several opportunities. I mean, I wish the fight this weekend was in a better situation for that, but Wilder or uh, Wilder Fury 2 will be in a situation, and you've got to think no matter what happens this weekend, there's going to be a couple future fights set up that will also be center stage uh, in the sports world. Let's talk about pay-per-view numbers for a second. There was a delay in getting these numbers because of the Thanksgiving holiday, and now it's looking very likely that I'll certainly be eating crow in terms of my prediction, uh, which was definitely in the 400 range. Rick Glazer, I just want—I hate to even mention his name, but he put a number of 138K, and let's just be real here— to take that seriously is complete garbage. That's such an exact number without a range. And I can tell you from experience that like 
only certain digital distribution places can give you exact numbers like that within a week. And usually it's only like, if you're a Fox, foxsports.com's digital distribution site is the only place that's going to give them a real number like that's not a five or a zero on the end of it in terms of a range. Please don't consider him a real source. Like I said, I hate to even mention his name. Jake Donovan came out on boxing scene and put the number at 275 today. Dan Raphael from ESPN put it at 225. I've put a little work into this, not what I did for Spence Porter. Uh, I'm going to end up guessing right now, let's call it an educated guess, that it's going to be closer to Dan's number than Jake. But it won't have a 1 or a 3 in front of it from the research I've done. And there are indicators that point towards numbers under 200 from certain places. I've also heard indicators that put it very close to what Jake Donovan has reported. So I'm not accusing him of being wrong. I don't feel comfortable giving a number right now because I think to do that correctly, you need to have several pieces of the puzzle to make an extrapolation that really will work. This isn't shooting from the hip or throwing darts. And here's a real-world example for that. I've actually heard from three different reliable sources, and actually a few even other people that I'm not sure if they, they seem to have a good number, but I don't know how they got it. Uh, for a number on DirecTV for this fight. Now, all the numbers are slightly different, but they're basically in the same range. And they're all basically what the number I heard was for DirecTV for Spence Porter. All right, well, I put Spence Porter pay-per-view, let's just say, in the 250 range, maybe a little bit above, but there are a lot of places that would still have it below that. The DirecTV number, even for 250, but even if it's slightly above that, if you look at the DirecTV number for Spence Porter, I was actually counting that as an under-index. It, it came out, let's put it this way. I'm not, and I'm not saying Jake Donovan's wrong here, because I don't know if he has. But if you're putting Spence Porter at 250, and you're saying that DirecTV under-indexed, so everything else had to overperform to get you to 250, I don't, I don't know how you get to 275 unless you're just looking at the other indicators to put it there. But there's so many pieces to the puzzle. I'm also going to say DirecTV is a dumpster fire right now, and we'll like just, it'll likely continue to index downward. But even when Wilder fought Fury the first time, the DirecTV number was dramatically higher than what it was for Wilder Ortiz too maybe even depending on what you believe, almost double. And that one did 325. So here's the thing. This marketplace is truly dynamic. Things are changing all the time, and there are indicators, like I said, for this fight that it did under 200. So I'm more or less surprised that anyone can get a real number from this. And you'll see other journalists are actually becoming more and more hesitant to throw out numbers. Because this ain't the marketplace for pay-per-view of four or five years ago, where you get a market, you get a number from one place, you plug it into a formula, and then you got your number. Anyways, getting out of the actual pay-per-view number, I, along with many others, thought that the crazy marketing push that Fox gave for this would open up a lot of casual interest, but that clearly wasn't the case. Remember, pay-per-view fights here in terms of selling them, it's part art, part science. Fox nailed most of the science part here the art part they really didn't do well and i think you can le you can levy two legit criticisms against them one was that the fight wasn't pay-per-view worthy because it was on pay cable last year that was something i talked about last episode and the build-up to it that was a knock against it and two their marketing and promotional materials didn't sell the fight correctly that was something i talked about against them I thought the sheer volume of awareness that they were putting into this would overcome those. They clearly did not. These criticisms, though, are more on the art side. And I give Fox massive credit for nailing the science part. And I hope they don't get discouraged here. 
They shouldn't be because Wilder Fury 2 is next, and I do feel like the floor for that is much higher, and the ceiling is very high. I am very hesitant to throw out where I think it could do because I think what we're seeing here is you need to do all parts of this correctly for it to really work. And some of that is, quote-unquote, pure marketing in terms of media buying. Some of that is marketing in terms of storytelling. Some of that is PR in terms of how you're pushing it into the public consciousness. And some of that is actually a weird combination of programming and marketing where your original programming on your network are actually using, they're, they're actually pushing, especially the talk shows, they're pushing this fight as an event. And... Until that's all done really, really well, and by the way, neither Fox nor ESPN has has done that well, has done all parts of that well to this point, then it's not going to hit its ceiling. But I do think the, the, the floor and the, the ceiling is very high for this. I don't know if it's $2 million, it's probably not, but it is very high. The floor is where there's a lot of debate for that. And, and I'm not ready to give out what, what I would think my floor is yet. You know, I also just think this is a criticism, and, and it's mostly just been at Fox because Fox is the one that's been doing pay-per-views recently. The Fox marketing team, this is something you just have to realize. They're just not built to do this. Like at HBO, the entire programming and marketing department were happy to help out in terms of making marketing materials and and programming like 24-7 that really dove deep and, and sold the fight. And I know some of the fight camp stuff that Fox did, it did sell the fight, but there, there's just no way you can look at that and think that Showtime or HBO would have done a better job with it. And it's not really, I don't even say that, that's not for me to say that Showtime and HBO are just better at this than Fox. The Fox's, Fox's team isn't built to do this. They have so much more volume of sports to deal with than what HBO and Showtime ever had. They're much more worried about making sure that they nail the very short network promos for Fox's Thursday Night Football, and they should be. They really should be. And those things are on a very tight turnaround and it's surface marketing. You need to pick out the major points that work and just build a quick promo around, you know, Thursday Night Football. It's, hey, it's Aaron Rodgers versus Lamar Jackson or whoever it is. You know, it's just, it's, that's how you're, how you're doing it. And that's selling something that's on free TV. When you're selling something that requires people to dig into their pockets and pay 75 bucks, it's, it's going to be a much more sophisticated sale uh, that goes a lot deeper. That's just the bottom line. Um, we also just have to mention here, you know, I wonder who is actually eating the financial losses for this. I mean, it's clearly not Fox, but there's just no world. I mean, I thought there would be losses if the thing gets 500,000 pay-per-view buys. It obviously isn't going to do that. I mean, even before, even when you just add up the total pay-per-view revenue and the total gate, and I'm sure if you throw in all the international sales, it's not going to equal Wilder's payday plus Ortiz's payday. And that's not even taking into account everyone else's cut, which, you know, traditionally I think Fox gets a better deal for PBC on this, but you know, it's basically 50% of all the pay-per-view sales. And a huge chunk of the gate, too, is usually just going to go straight um, out of the pay-per-view promotion. So there's really no scenario where there's not an eight-figure loss for this fight. I don't know who's eating it. I don't know if it's PBC, if it's Waddell and Reed. I don't know who it is. Um, but there's just no way the fight didn't lose money, which has to be disappointing. Uh, you know, obviously, look, like I've said before in this, it's just disappointing. No one wants PBC to take a loss like that because at some point that loss shows up on, on your TV screen. 
whether it's in the matchups on Fox, whether it's in the matchups on FS1, whatever it is, you know, unless I'm wrong and Waddell and Reed is just eating it as a benefactor, you know, and it's not going to show up on the TV screen, you know, you just have to wonder for that kind of stuff. So I'd love to learn more about that, but I, I just, I don't understand how that is a viable business. And look, like I said last episode, there's lots of reasons for that. DAZN being offering Deontay Wilder a huge payday, you know, there, there's probably no way Deontay Wilder would have gotten a guaranteed payday of $20 million for this fight unless DAZN would have made him that huge offer. So I don't blame all that on PBC. It has to be noted that DAZN put him in that situation. But they're in that situation, and they had to they manage Deontay Wilder and, or advise him or whatever it is, but they had to make sure he got that payday. And whether it was them on the line or whoever it was, that's what happened. Okay, let's talk about the undercard fights. Um, it was kind of a shame. This was an amazing pay-per-view undercard set of fights on paper. Uh, and it just, <laughs> in practice, didn't turn out to be that way at all. You know, the Santa Cruz fight was really boring. The, you know, Luis Neri is the main culprit here. And I actually don't blame Rodriguez for not taking the fight. Um, and Neri's just so talented, and, and it's a shame. You know, he, like, people are starting to get a little bit fed up with this crap from him. Um, but he's just so talented. You want to see him in big fights. All right. Um, and, and, you know, the other fight, I, there, I just don't have that much to say about it. Like, I didn't really watch, you know, it was a great knockout for Ramirez versus Bartholomew, and, Figueroa versus Seha was a draw, but it, it's not like it was fought at a super high level. I think both fighters, I'd love to see. It was good TV, but that was like an FS1 main event kind of level fight. Um, you know, I'd love to see the guys. I, I think especially with Figueroa, we can see improvements there. And, and, and Seha's a great TV fighter. Um, but, you know, I didn't feel like I was watching two super talented guys go at it from that fight. All right, let's just move on because there's a lot to get to here. So also on Saturday, November 23rd from Liverpool, England, England, and on DAZN, Callum Smith defeats John Ryder by somewhat controversially unanimous decision to retain his WBA super middleweight title. I didn't watch this until after I knew the result, which I never try to do. I always try to stay off social media and not know the results until I watch all the fights. I thought John Ryder had no shot at winning this fight in the buildup, but look, there's a completely legit case here that Ryder should have won the fight. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say I clearly thought he won, but again, I watched it knowing the result ahead of time, and I wasn't watching it super closely and scoring it while I watched it. But, you know, the point here is there is a lot at stake. Maybe Ryder, you know, should have won. A lot of people on social media certainly thought that. I don't think Callum Smith is going to be next for Canelo, but obviously he was 100% on the radar uh, to get that fight. Maybe next, maybe in the next year or so, Ryder can use this loss to legitimize himself. And actually, you heard Canelo mention his name because of this performance. I mean, who knows? It would be really weird, though, if Canelo ended up fighting Ryder after this and not Callum Smith. Let's move on. DeZone had another card on Saturday, November 23rd, where we saw Rene Alvarado beat Andrew Cancio by KO7, and then Zukon beat Manny Robles third by wide unanimous decision in what was a very fun TV fight. Andrew Cancio is going to be the deep dive this episode, and so I'll just leave that there and say Alvarado had a great performance um, and is a tested fighter, so congrats to him for a life-changing victory. Zucan is an amazing TV fighter and is now in the category of must-see TV. I don't really know how long this is going to last with his lack of power, but I'm going to keep watching and just keep going with it. All right, on Saturday, November 30th, from Monte Carlo on DAZN, we had Alexander Besputin beating Radza Butayev by close unanimous decision for a vacant WBA regular welterweight title. Also on the card, we had Cecilia Breakus beating Victoria Bustos by a wideness decision to retain a bunch of women's welterweight titles. Bummer that the Kuzmin-Zhang-Zili heavyweight fight fell out. That would have been an interesting one. 
but, you know, look, the main event here didn't disappoint Vesputin to me one pretty clearly, although I'd love to see more of Butiev. I'm not really sure what this title is going to end up meaning because it's a BS title that Pacquiao had before Pac beat Thurman and then got the real WBA title. I mean, who knows how long and if there's even a mandate from the WBA to fight these guys. You know, you saw that Ugas got mandated to fight for, for Bisputin. It's actually a really good fight if it can happen. So, you know... Maybe one day we can count on a big event in Russia if Desputin beats Ugas and Pac wants to get paid there and the WBA is actually going to make the two guys fight each other. I doubt that'll ever happen. You know, whatever. We'll see. Breakus won big. I'm always interested in what she has uh, going on. And, you know, let's, I'd rather see her fight big names that aren't in her weight class. But, you know, if she wants to keep defending titles like this, it's kind of fun TV. Also on Saturday, November 30th, from Las Vegas on ESPN+, Oscar Valdez doesn't fight Andres Gutierrez, who missed weight by a whopping 11 pounds in a WBC junior lightweight eliminator, and rather fights Adam Lopez and beats him by controversial KO7. Also on the card, Carl Frampton beats Tyler McCreary by wide unanimous decision at junior lightweight, and Patrick Teixeira beats Carlos Adames in a... WBO junior middleweight eliminator by, or actually I think a title, by very close unanimous decision. Coming in, I didn't think this was the best fight card. And other, I did think Teixeira Adamas would be close and fairly evenly matched. Um, but I just, I really like watching Oscar Valdez and Carl Frampton fight. Look, I'm happy to be in Crow on this one in terms of pure entertainment. Valdez, noteworthy fighter for a lot of reasons, but one of them in particular is just see that Reynoso factor happening. And you could actually see him starting to do some of the head movement, some of the body movement that Canelo does really well. He just wasn't doing it really well. Uh, and, you know, it's a good sign that he's starting to try to do some of that. But obviously at heart, Valdez is just a brawler. And it's a really, it's really interesting to see what is the right style for him? Like, he got knocked down in the second round by not leaving his hand up in defense, and Tim Bradley was on fire just pointing out some of his defensive deficiencies on the broadcast, where he just kind of like, you know, the one time he just leaves his mouth open, and that's how he broke his jaw against Scott Quigg. He made the same mistake. This is a great night of fights. Um, I think, actually, it was for a vacant... Uh, the Teixeira fight was for... It was an eliminator for a, 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 an interim title that will end up being the real title. We'll see. Who cares? Right. Congrats to Teixeira. He, he, that was a hell of a fight from him. All right. Let's go to the deep dive. For the deep dive this week, I was triggered by Golden Boy's decision to release Andrew Cancio after his first fight this, or after his first title defense this weekend. So first, we're going to go into what we saw this weekend and a little bit of Cancio's history and, and sort of story. And next, we'll look at some of the potential ramifications for all parties, maybe why this happened. And finally, I'm just going to say my piece on why I vehemently disagree with what Golden Boy's doing here. So to begin, let's just start out with who Andrew Cancio is. And I've talked about him a few times on this podcast, but let's not even start with the headline that... He's this blue-collar worker who's kept his day job, you know, through his success over the past year ago. Like, let's just look at who Andrew Cancio is as a boxer. He's 21-5-2 with 16 KOs. He's from Blythe, California, which is on the California-Arizona border, probably a very similar distance from Phoenix than it is from L.A. So that's, that's, it's not, you know... It is Southern California. It's not like suburban or exurban or, or even urban L.A. Like, it's way out there. Andrew Cancio had a draw in his pro debut. And in his next four fights, he fought opponents with a combined record of 0-26, all in Mexico, two of which were making their pro debuts. He won all those fights by KO. He didn't fight his first fight in the United States towards the end of 2006. This is 2006. That's the year he turned pro, and in that fight, he drew again against a one-and-two fighter. 
This is not the makings of a future world titleist. I mean, he won a few other fights before suffering his career, first career loss. He lost to the not-so-vaunted Carlos Vinon by majority decision in 2008. That was, by the way, his only fight of 2008. And then he won two fights in 2009, didn't even fight in 2010. And when you look at this, if you just stop right here, this is the boxing career of a guy who usually ends up holding down a career as a jackhammer operator or a factory worker or a cab driver or something like that. And Andrew Cancio kept his job as a jackhammer operator for California, you know, Southern California Gas. And where I'll start to give Cancio credit as a fighter is in 2011, he only fought twice, but they were both against guys with decent records. And he started a run of five straight fights at the Fantasy Springs Casino in Indio, with the final two fights being against Rocky Juarez, which is the name that most, most boxing fans will actually know. And that was in a fight he won. And then he suffered his first law or his second loss against Roger Gonzalez, who was a legit fighter but hasn't fought since then. A fight after that, he beat Jerry Belmontes, who was 18-1 at the time, and he won. You know, then he lost to an undefeated Ronnie Rios. And at this point, he's not fighting often. But when he fights, it's against legit guys. He he beats Rene Alvarado in 2015 by KO. And then he wins another fight before losing to Jojo Diaz for the NABF featherweight title. He then wins two fights at Fantasy Springs against decent competition, I think against Eastern Euro guys, before getting the Alberto Machado fight for Machado's WBA super featherweight title. And let's pause here for a second, because if you're just looking at Andrew Cancio's boxing career up to now, he's 19-4-2, and he's the definition of a really good B-side opponent. He's the definition in terms of what it really means. Like He's just another guy. He's not a bum. He's just another guy. He hasn't done anything noteworthy yet besides having a few victories over other versions of just another guy. And that, what actually makes him also fairly interesting is he's kind of cheap because he hasn't, he's cheap as an opponent, let's say, for Golden Boy, and that's probably why they signed him, uh, because he hasn't made decent money at all, and he also hasn't lost to that major A-level opponent. So he doesn't even have that calling card yet of he's the guy who put up a good fight against and then name your title holder who's actually a really well-known fighter. He doesn't have that as a calling card. And so this brings us to the story of Andrew Cancio, which is sort of, is probably one of the better, and you know, if it weren't for Andy Ruiz, I mean, this is, one of the most pure stories that boxing has produced in 2019. And I mean, inherently in the Cancio story is this blue-collar element where he works, you know, at SoCal Gas, and he's using a jackhammer and knocking crap over, and he hasn't quit his day job yet. And I think he's 31 right now. He was probably 30 when he won the fight. He's a family guy with two kids, a long-term girlfriend, they live in Blythe, and if I was advising him, I wouldn't have told him to quit his day job at this point. This is before, this is when he knows he has the first Alberta Machado fight. And in boxing, you know, no one is kidding. Like I said, when the, the cliche of a champ who's knocking out cab drivers defending his belt, like, they say they're making fun of a, of the champ, but like, this is literally how boxing works for these types of opponents. Like, there's a good chance that guys like Cancio are actually cab drivers in real life because they're making purses that just aren't that high. Making their, they're making ten grand, maybe twenty five grand per fight. It could easily be less than that. So for Cancio, he got a reported seventy five grand to take the Machado fight, which was for the real WBA title. In February, and that's real money. That's a great deal. It's not quit your day job money, but if he were four or five years younger and didn't have any kids, maybe it's the moment where as a fighter you can say, okay, 
I'm going to get this payday and then win or lose. I'm going to train full time for a year and not worry about my living expenses. You know, I'll obviously continue to make more money if I win. Um, but even if I lose and I'm credible, I'll also just have a bigger name. So hopefully I'll get paid more money in, in future fights. Andrew Cancio rewrote that script, though, in February. He won that fight, and then he was forced into an immediate rematch, which was contractual, and he was set to make $125,000 for that. And guess what? He won that. Never quit his day job, and there were a lot of stories written about him, and he is an A-plus story. And even for me personally, like, I saw him at a few events. He was at the, the Canelo Danny Jacobs press event in LA. That was one of the places I saw him. And the media was all over him, and it wasn't just the boxing media. It was all kinds of TV, and he actually does really well on camera. I was really impressed by watching him do interviews for TV outlets. He would do some interviews. You know, you, I've heard him do interviews for podcasts, uh, you know, not at that event or whatever, but you, but you hear him on a podcast. podcast and it's like he's literally on his 15-minute break from work or his lunch break from work, uh, and he's doing the interview from work. And, I mean, this is the kind of thing they make movies about. Like, this it, this is – it's just an A-plus story. And he's probably – like, he sounds like a really good dude as well. Like, he's the kind of, like, if you're at an airport watching football or something at a bar, like, he's probably the guy you'd want to have a beer with and, and chat with. But let's get out of the PR world of what makes it a great story for a second, and let's just look at the pure business of boxing in this day and age and look at what Andrew Cancio means in terms of that business. Now, first and foremost, in this era of boxing, Holding a title belt in any weight class, and let's just classify that by saying you're holding one of the recognized belts from WBC, WBA, IBF, or WBO. Some, some of them have more than one belt at a weight class, but you get the point. This is what gets you paid. And with all the competition from networks and promotional companies, fighters are getting paid a lot more by having belts. My man John Nash at Bloody Elbow has been covering this pretty well, for the last year or two, like go read any article he's written about pay structure. There, the overall point here, there is not a rising tide that's lifting all boats in overall pay structure here. To really get paid, you need to fall into one of the following categories. You need to e either just be number one, you're a superstar and belts don't really matter. Number two, you're a ticket seller and whether you like it or not, or whether you have a belt or not, you're a meaningful fighter. Number three, you have a world title. And usually out of the, you know, I guess number four, you're a big time prospect. But in terms of the top three, usually if you're in categories one and two, you're also in category three. You also have a belt. And so, especially in this day and age where networks actually don't employ boxing people, like boxing programmers, a quote unquote boxing guy, one of the only ways to ensure there's some kind of quality control is to put on title fights and unification fights on the network. And what that means for Andrew Cancio is pure and simple. He has a belt. He has no outstanding contractual commitments for a set salary. He won the title. And there's a rematch clause where he got a set payday. He won the rematch. And now he should go get paid. And second, let's just look at Cancio's weight class which is junior lightweight or 130 pounds. If you look at the top 10 rankings, the transnational board has had him at number five until he lost. Now he's at number 10. But ESPN still has him at number seven. Ring has him at number eight. And this is one of the most competitive weight classes in the sport right now. All these places have some version of Miguel Burchelt, who's the WBC champ, as number one. Um... You know, some of these places have a champ who's vacant or whatever, but Tevin Farmer is the IBF champ. Trevante Davis, yes, he's moving up, but he was the WBA champ, not the real one. Can't see who had the real one. Jamel Herring is the WBO champ. Leo Santa Cruz just moved up, and he won Davis's title after Davis vacated it to move up. He won the interim version of it, which will become 
the real version of it, Masayuki Ito, Jojo Diaz, Miguel Roman, they're all pretty established fighters there. That uh, Rakimov, maybe he's not super established yet, but he's super talented. He's a legit fighter. Oscar Valdez, Carl Frampton have moved up into the weight class this past weekend. Gary Russell Jr. has talked about moving up. Vasily Lomachenko has talked about moving down. I mean, ESPN even used graphics during their broadcast suggesting that Shakur Stevenson would move up for the right fight and maybe might have to just because he's growing. This is one of the deepest weight classes in the sport, both in talent and in terms of, of names, and also where there are very few established stars. I mean, out of all the people I listed, Gervonta Davis is the star, and he's moving up. So you get paid by fighting him, and then Lomachenko, if he decides to move down, like he's a star. And everybody else is just is, is kind of a, a pretty well-established name, but not a huge financial, financially successful fighter. There just aren't a lot of commercial superstars. But there's a lot of business to be done. And precisely because of these conditions, fights across networks or promotional companies is actually a real possibility. So after getting a sense of what the landscape looks like here, let's just take a look at exactly what happened with Cancio. What Golden Boy did with Cancio, in, if you just purely isolate it in terms of matchmaking, it's actually defendable. Like, I won't defend the payday. They reportedly paid him 200 k which in a weight class like this is, I just think it's under market for having a title, for title defense, and that's not really up for debate. Both Top Rank and PBC would have paid him better. Matchroom would have paid him better. Eddie Hearn is paying Tevin Farmer a lot better. Jamel Herring is almost a perfect comp from top rank. He is an older fighter as well, who has a great story behind him. He's he's the only one who can even compete with, with uh, Cancio in terms of just being a great story. He got paid better. He got paid 300K for his first defense, so essentially 50% better. Golden Boy also just gave Cancio a mandatory title defense, to, I guess to get the mandatory out of the way. Against a fighter, Cancio is also, you know, he's already beaten in front of his home crowd where he's a pretty good draw like if you phrase it that way it's like oh, okay you're fighting a rematch against a guy you've already beaten in front of your home crowd it's kind of an old school model where a guy gets his first title defense and you don't know if he has the talent to keep it for a long time so you start out with the the mandatory defense and try to test the waters i mean even three years ago maybe that's the way you do it but in this day and age titles mean a lot more and quite frankly, Andrew Cancio's story means a lot more than that. Would it have been worth it to go straight into a unification fight? I mean, I think so. It probably would have at least tripled or quadrupled his payday. And there are scenarios where you, you would have gotten a million bucks. I mean, the other guys would have had to accept the fight. Maybe they wouldn't have wanted to take it, but they would have all gotten paid more too. It's not like they're making huge paydays except for Davis. And I actually think they could have scheduled a unification fight on any platform televising boxing right now. Obviously, they could have gone straight into Cancio versus Farmer on DAZN if they would have DAZN would have wanted it. Cancio would have made way more than two hundred grand fighting on the network where he won the title and defended it. Golden Boy has done business with Top Rank several times for fighters in this in this era, including unification fights. Look, as a mandatory, granted it was mandatory, but Joette Gonzalez made double what Cancio made for a regular title fight on ESPN Plus a few weeks ago. Last year, Lomachenko beat Linares in a unification fight where Linares made over a million bucks as an opponent. Given that Top Rank has Burchelt and Herring, who are titleists, they probably would have loved to make a unification fight for one of those guys. And I can't imagine the payday being less than 500 k for Cancio. Remember, just this summer... At 140, ESPN and Hearn made a big money fight, unification fight for Jose Ramirez and Mo Hooker, where both guys got well into seven figures. I'm sure PBC would have made Cancio a big offer too. They could have quote unquote unified the WBA titles and actually added a legit scalp to Gervonta Davis's record, which he probably needs. That would have had to have been at, at 130. Davis is moving up. Okay, he's out of there. 
PBC could have even waited after he moved up and had Leo Santa Cruz fight him. I mean, based on their history, they probably weren't going to do that. But, you know, they could have. That would have been an incredible fight for the pay-per-view undercard. Now, I mean, the old school mindset would be like, oh, well, why don't you just get this guy 200K and then get him a bigger fight? But to me, that's bullshit. Cancio asked for bigger fights. And if he was a young prospect still in the gym learning on the job, that'd be one thing. But he's 31 and still has his day job. And because he doesn't trust the business machine of the sport to treat him well, you know, you want to get him paid. If you really even want to get nerdy on it, I mean, if he would have taken a unification fight somewhere else and lost, his comeback fight probably would have been close to, if not more than 200K, just because he would have been a former title holder who fought in a big unification fight and, you know, would have had a huge, another huge platform to tell his story. I do want to pause for a second and make it clear that I disagree with Cancio's decision not to quit or at least take a leave of absence from his day job and box full-time. I've said this on previous podcasts. Usually you can take a leave of absence from your job for at least a year, sometimes more. And I don't know all the circumstances for Cancio and his family surrounding this. He obviously needs to make sure his family has health care. And he's definitely, you know, like he has not gotten a defining payday up to this point. You know, and you can look at his performance there and just say, oh, he's really not that talented. He got caught early in round one. He never fully recovered. But you can also look at the performance and say, hey, man, that was an exhausted guy. Yeah, he got caught. He's a real talented guy. He gutted it out for six more rounds. But that's the kind of performance someone gives when they work a freaking jackhammer eight hours a day and then do all kinds of crazy conditioning and sparring, probably driving hours to and from to get to. Well, you're mentally exhausted because you won a world title, defended it, and then you were told you're going to be fighting on Canelo's undercard in a prime spot, and then you got moved to the same old place where you fought all your fights for the last couple of years and fight an opponent you've already beaten. And that's not the best way to do it from a mental standpoint. Like, you have to wonder how he sleeps because of the 9-to-5 working conditions and the training. I mean, now there's clear science pointing to sleep being a key factor in athletes' recoveries. I mean, in other professional leagues like the NBA, I mean, athletes are changing their sleep schedules to help with their recovery. When you keep a full-time job, you're literally using your vacation days for things like press and major elements of fight week. So there's just no downtime for them. And that part of the mental game is just so important. But even as I say all this, I think it's even more egregious on Golden Boy's part not to get him as high of a payday as possible right away. They know all this. They should make sure he quits his job and get him that payday. You know, they did this and it just feels like they're trying to send a message to their fighters that you need to stay in line. Canelo was complaining. Ryan Garcia was complaining. Those guys are stars, so Golden Boy will open up the checkbook for him. But when Cancio complains, those people just get cut. And it's kind of weird because Cancio was a world champion. Ryan Garcia isn't yet. My biggest issue with Golden Boy on this is what Andrew Cancio represents to Golden Boy's fan base. Andrew Cancio literally is Golden Boy's fan base. There probably wasn't a better representative for the company as someone with blue-collar, Hispanic roots. I mean, blue-collar Hispanic fans, that, that is Golden Boy's fan base. And those fans can gravitate towards a guy like Andrew Cancio. Guys like Andrew Cancio buy tickets to Golden Boy's fights and figure out how to subscribe to DAZN so they can watch the ones that aren't in their home arenas. Like, Cancio should be on those Modelo commercials that focus on guys with blue-collar jobs like firefighters, and they have some MMA fighters in there too. Cancio probably should have just been at every event as an ambassador for Golden Boy to their fan base. And just pay him some appearance fees or something like that, but just... Like, you know, maybe you can cut his work to part-time to keep up the facade if you really care about that, that he's still keeping his day job. But whether he takes leave of absence, quits it all together, you got to pay him just a little bit extra to be that rec- that ambassador, that recognizable face of Golden Boy. I mean, they need that. Sub- like, right now, Golden Boy needs that more than ever. 
It just, this strikes me as obvious. And Ryan Garcia is a future star, but the people that buy, that regularly, the repeat customers who buy tickets to Golden Boy shows, they don't identify with Ryan Garcia. They identify with Andrew Cancio. And this is a big middle finger to those fans. Want to talk about other negatives to Golden Boy without relitigating everything that's happened over the past six to nine months? I mean, this is not the best message to send, you know, to these kind of fighters. And let's be honest, Golden Boy depends on these kind of fighters. Like I mentioned that they were paying Cancio under market. I gave the Jamel Herring comparable. I think it's a great comparison. He just made 300 k for his last fight on ESPN+. He had a few losses, developed later in his career. Is literally at the same weight class as Cancio and, and made that purse fighting on a streaming network. You can't better, get a better comp than that. It's 50% more than Golden Boy paid for, Can- for Cancio for his first title defense. And I mean, I know 100 grand isn't a big deal when you're at Andy Ruiz, Anthony Joshua level paydays, but for these guys, it's a big deal. PBC doesn't have a comp like that that comes to mind, but trust me, they're going to take care of their their fighters in these. Like, they, I mean, they just would have paid them more. There's just clear evidence towards that. So if you're a fighter in this kind of position and you had a choice, who would you sign with? I mean, come on. If I'm really dinging Golden Boy as a promoter for this, I think it's just lazy promoting. This just reeks me like, hey, we got bunch of stories out there about Andrew. We got him a winnable fight, and he didn't deliver for us. He was angry at us, and so we didn't see you later. Which I'm not even sure they got a bunch of stories out about. And I'll get to that in a sec. And in the HBO and Showtime world, I still think that's lazy promoting, but at least it's like kind of defendable. But in this world where there's four different networks, four major promoters, it's just not intelligent. And here's what I mean by that. As I've said about titles in the old pay cable world, they're valuable, but not like they are today. So if you're Golden Boy, who's known for matching their B and B minus and C plus guys in tough, and that makes, look, to their defense, that that kind of matchmaking actually makes your lower level fight cards and a lot of your undercards like really good TV. But here's the thing. They got it with Machado. So they matched Machado, who they looked at, you know, he was looked at a future star. Freddie Roach is saying all the right things about him. They match him in with Cancio, who at the moment was like the C plus B minus opponent flavor of the month, and he freaking wins. And then he wins the rematch in dominating fashion. And then the story writes itself in the newspapers and and, and digital media. You know, Cancio becomes this thing that's way bigger than just a B minus level fighter with a title. And my issue is that it's such a good story, and it's easy to it starts to be easy to get into newspapers, and clearly. You can tell Golden Boy wasn't even pushing the narrative because it was the LA Times that actually went to Golden Boy with Cancio's semi-negative comments towards Golden Boy. And it was, you know, it was the LA Times that asked them for a response. And really, by the way, those comments sound pretty innocuous in nature, and you could probably have just had an easy conversation in-house and solved everything. And from the research I've done about this, like, it sounded basically like Golden Boy was pretty upset that someone like Cancio, who they considered a B-level fighter, won the title over Machado in the first place, and they weren't really pushing his story at all. And you just got to take away, like, what is happening here? Like, really, what is happening here? This is such a home run of a story that the newspaper is just running with it without you. And obviously, this is a fighter who doesn't trust you because he hasn't quit his day job yet. And... This is the kind of guy that you want to win the title. Like, this is just, if you're a promoter, this is falling into your lap. This is a home run. I mean, think about how, just by putting him on a Canelo card, even if it's the second undercard, or the, you know, or the main undercard, how many eyeballs you get on the story about him, I mean, like, Alvarado was the mandatory, but, like, you think the WBA of all sanctioning bodies is going to force you into a mandatory fight right away? Like, who does a mandatory fight for a fighter who just won a title? I mean, just in terms of pure matchmaking, you might look at it and say, like, oh, a B-minus fighter lost to another B-minus fighter. And we'll make sure the title stays in-house and by having Jojo Diaz get it or something like that. But it's, like, out of all the guys that you have in your stable to pick at this point, 
Wouldn't you want Andrew Cancio with the title? Cancio got served a few on a silver platter as a guy who literally represents the stereotype of your ticket-buying consumers. And instead of treating him like an extra special delivery that just came out of nowhere, like instead of – and he's basically the hot girl who walks up to you at the bar and just starts hitting on you. And it's like you choose to make an example out of him because you've had a rough year with fighters. Like, I just don't get it. I really don't. And look, I, you know, I'm giving him – I try not to be too negative on promotional companies in this podcast because at the end of the day, it's a brutal business. And I'll include whatever. PBC is a content company. I'll include them in that too. I do really care about fighter pay. And promoters – they really they invest a lot in the fighters. They deserve a chance to recoup their investment as well. Anyways, you know, now Cancio, he's going to get his opportunity to do it with either Top Rank or PBC or Matchroom. Hopefully make a couple paydays. I hope for his sake he does get the right deal and get an opportunity to focus full-time on training, get the right amount of rest and win some of these fights. I mean, here's the bottom line. There's a lot of Andrew Cancios out there when you just look at the talent level and how hard guys like him fight. And as a fighter, he's talented, no doubt. He's definitely above the middle class. Like, he's, a, he's, not, he's not a guy. I'm not saying he's a dime a dozen in, in terms of talent. He's very talented. But there's a lot of guys who have the talent to win world titles. As a story, though, and as someone who can speak to the core fan base of this sport, especially in Southern California. Andrew Cancio is special, and he's one of a kind. I'm rooting for him. I hope he gets the opportunities. And I just, I don't think this was the moment to make an example out of somebody for Golden Boy. That's me. I think that's most fans in the sport. I think most fans got to, you know, realize that... This was not the right thing to do. And I hope it works out for Andrew. All right. Let's move on to the preview section. Big one here is Saturday, December 7th from Saudi Arabia. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the town where it's happening. And on to zone where Andy Ruiz Jr. fights Anthony Joshua in the rematch of their fight from June with the IBF, WBO, and WBA heavyweight titles at stake here. Also on the card, Alexander Bovetkin fights Michael Hunter in a WBA heavyweight eliminator. Dillian White fights Marius Wack at heavyweight, and Philip Ergovich fights Eric Molina at heavyweight. Odds for the fight are as follows. AJ is about a 2-1 to one favorite over Ruiz right now. Maybe a little bit higher depending on where you look at it. Hunter is about a 2-1 to one favorite over Povetkin. White is a bigger favorite, about 15-1 to 1 over Vak. Ergovich is 20-1 uh, to 1 or maybe 25-1 to 1 over Molina. I've talked about this a lot before, uh, but there probably haven't been bigger stakes for any fight in boxing in perhaps decades than this one. And it's not just the stakes for the fighters themselves and their future earnings. Uh, and it's not, quite frankly, just for promoters. I mean, most of the fights I worked on HBO – the big stakes were for the fighters or the promoters. This is also for the networks. I mean, Ruiz winning not only ruins DAZN's big shot at developing a worldwide superstar in AJ even further, it makes all the investment that DAZN and Hearn have put into the heavyweight division seem not like the wisest investment. I mean, you can even make an argument that this is the snowball that starts the avalanche that if DAZN is going to leave North America, it's because they didn't get a chance. You know, that, it's that Ruiz won the fight and they were depending on AJ and Canelo and, and AJ just disappeared. I'm not ready to make that case yet, but you can make that case. Matchroom, I mean, Jesus, they would lose their cash cow if AJ lost. You know, Ruiz winning is, is, I mean, that is just a golden opportunity to print money for PBC and Fox. You know, if it goes the other way, I mean, you know, it's all, it's all there for DAZN for the taking. And Ruiz, I get, you know, it's maybe less at stake. He would still be a valuable fighter. But 
you know, if especially after that Walder Ortiz rematch pay-per-view seems to fall flat, if Walder loses to Fury, all of a sudden Walder versus Ruiz on pay-per-view doesn't feel that big anymore. So it's, it's kind of a lot at stake. There's if if, th- if both those guys lose, you do not have a license to print money. If they win, you're printing money. That's a huge pay-per-view. The rest of this card, failed drug test aside, I mean, it's actually, it's real quality. I'm looking forward to watching it live. Um, it's during the day, so my kids are going to love the movie or whatever they're going to do with my wife while I watch this. Uh, but yeah, th- this is it. This is great stuff. Also on Saturday, December 7th, from New York on Showtime, we have Jermall Charlo fighting Dennis Hogan for Charlo's WBC middleweight title, which he got after Canelo was elevated to the franchise champion. Then Chris Eubank Jr. fights Matt Korobov for a vacant WBA interim middleweight title, which is just amazing work by the WBA that an interim title can be vacant. Um, and then finally on this card, Marlon Tapales fights Ryosuke Iwasa for a vacant IBF interim junior featherweight title where we got another vacant interim title. I love that distinction. I mean, you know, I I guess in fairness to the IBF, it's really just an eliminator, you know, and the winner will have to fight Danny Roman if he wants to keep his IBF title. But I mean, wow. It, odds are as follows. Charles between a 10 and 15 to one favorite, depending on where you look. Eubank Jr. is between a 2- and 3-1 to one favorite over Korbuff. This is actually a really strong card. I think Charlo will dominate Hogan. Um, especially after that performance against Munguia, though, you have to give Dennis Hogan a little bit of credit. I just think he'll fall short. I don't really see him with a pathway to victory, even though it's like you can see him as a 10-1 to one favorite, which usually that's, that's usually right where I put around the borderline of like, okay, it's probably not going to be competitive, but maybe there's a pathway to victory. Uh, like I said, Eubank versus Gorbov, great fight. Uh, great, great fight. And, you know, either guy can win. And we're not even done yet on Saturday, December 7th, because from Puebla, Mexico, and on ESPN Plus, we have two more title fights. Emmanuel Navarrete is fighting Francisco Horta for Navarrete's WBO Junior Featherweight title. And Jerwin Ancajas fights Miguel uh, Gonzalez for Ancajas's. IBF Junior Bantamweight title. I mean, this is clearly the third best card, you know, here. I mean, and, and DeZones is going to blow everybody away. Showtime's card, like I said, not a bad card at all. This one, you know, there's not even odds out yet on this. And actually, further, there, there's actually two UFC Fight Pass cards and a David Lemieux comeback fight uh, from Montreal on this day, too. I mean, it's just a crazy date for boxing. Let's move on to the following weekend on Friday, December 13th from Indio, California and on zone. We have Virgil Ortiz Jr. fighting Brad Solomon at welterweight. Underrated good fight here. Brad, Brad Solomon is going to be a tough solve for Virgil Ortiz, but Ortiz should solve it. Um, and we're also seeing Alberto Machado in a comeback fight, a couple of their prospects fighting. And then on Saturday, December 14th from New York and on ESPN in what is now officially a yearly tradition after the Heisman Trophy uh, presentation we have Terence Crawford fighting Ugudis Kavaluskis for Crawford's WBO welterweight title. Also on the card, Richard Comey is fighting Teofimo Lopez for Comey's IBF lightweight title. Michael Conlon is taking on Vladimir Nikitin to avenge his Olympic loss, and then a few other interesting prospects are on the card. Odds are as follows: Crawford's between a ten and twelve to one favorite. Although I don't really see Cavaluskas with a pathway to victory at all on this. Comey Lopez fight is really close. Lopez is under a two to one favorite. A lot of places basically have it as a pick'em. That is a great fight. I I love that fight, and I think a lot of other people do too. Alright. That is a lot of action from the past two weeks. It's a lot of action for the upcoming two weeks. I have a couple interesting episodes planned coming up. There'll be the year-end review episode coming up maybe in one or two. I've also I've thrown out the idea of do I won't even put it out there because I think it's sort of a, an evergreen uh, deep dive that I, I have a fun one planned. 
Um, and I'm sure there's going to be a, talk, a lot to talk about next episode just after what happens here in the ring because there's so much good stuff coming up. Enjoy the next two weeks. I will talk to you all then. Did you get what you was looking for?